Okay, so if you are listening to this episode the day it drops, I realize that it's not Thursday, but I hope that you will still indulge me with a little throwback. For week three of New Reads November 2023, my guests and I dive into Maureen Gu's latest YA novel, which is called, well, Throwback. The book was published in April of this year, sporting an amazing cover that deserves a shout out all its own. Beyond that delicious cover though, Throwback has tons of substance to offer. It tells the story of a high schooler named Sam, who is struggling to connect with her mother Priscilla, the daughter of Korean immigrants who is fully committed to fitting into and conforming with their American community. When Sam's grandmother experiences a health crisis that inspires Sam and Priscilla's biggest fight yet, a mysterious rideshare service shows up to make things right. Sam travels back in time, where she meets the high school version of her mother and helps her campaign for Homecoming Queen. As you can probably imagine, this experience inspires a new level of understanding and empathy between the two. We talk all about it on episode 270. My guests and I also discuss our personal homecoming experiences, our general thoughts on time travel narratives, the complicated nature of mother-daughter relationships, the layers of the immigrant experience that we see across generations, microaggressions, our reliance on technology, the appeal of the 90s setting in throwback, and the tension between conformity and standing out. In July of 2019, I had the chance to interview this week's guest along with her then-podcast co-host, and I am thrilled to welcome her back for episode 270 and a one-on-one discussion. Fast forward more than four years, and Becca Freeman is the author of The Christmas Orphans Club, which came out in late September and is her debut novel. She is also the co-host of the Bad on Paper podcast, a weekly chat show covering everything from creativity to grocery shopping habits. The podcast also hosts a monthly book club. Becca lives in Brooklyn, New York, and you can find her on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. Find more information and links at BeccaFreeman.net. If you're anything like me and you love a little seasonal reading as we head into the holidays, be sure you've added Becca's book, The Christmas Orphans Club, to your TBR for the next few weeks. You'll hear more about it at the end of this interview, so stay tuned. Speaking of the holidays, I would love for you to consider gifting yourself a little something this year. A subscription to the SSR Patreon community is truly the gift that keeps on giving, and for less than the cost of that weekly peppermint mocha. Depending on the tier you choose, you'll gain access to monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, the SSR Discord channel, and weekly exclusive Q&As with podcast guests. Plus, you'll get an invite to the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club. Get into the holiday spirit with us next month as we read Three Holidays and a Wedding. Patreon benefits will roll on even as I take a brief maternity leave from the podcast itself starting in January. Plus, you'll know that you're helping to keep the show going strong. Learn more and join the fun at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If Patreon isn't in the cards for you at the moment, you can also spread a little love this holiday season by posting a five-star rating or review of SSR on your podcast player of choice or sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Be sure to tag me at SSRpod so I can see it. The podcast is also on Twitter at SSRpod and on Facebook when you search the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. As you will hear shortly, Becca read Throwback as an audiobook and really loved it. You can give the audio edition of this book and so, so many others a try with my friends at Libro.fm. Visit Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. We all use Amazon for plenty of things, especially at this time of year, but I personally love looking for opportunities to spend my money elsewhere when I can and this is a fantastic one. There are also great gifting options there for the book lovers on your shopping list. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. 
If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Becca. Welcome back to SSR. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me back. I'm honored. We were talking before. It feels like it has been a absolute lifetime, or if not a lifetime, a full pandemic since we last talked. Definitely a full pandemic, but also maybe a couple of lifetimes. I feel like we are both living very different lives than we were the first time I had you on the show. I was like a brand new baby podcaster. I was so nervous that day. You were? Yeah, I was terrified. Oh my gosh. I'm such an idiot. I can't believe anyone would be nervous to talk to me. No, I was so nervous and... I feel as though I've come a long way as a podcaster, so I'm not as nervous, and it's so nice to have one-on-one time with you. We're going to get to talk about your book that's out in the world, which is so fun. I can't wait to pick your brain about it more. And now we get to have a fun New Reads November conversation, which is a nice turn from your first appearance as well, because we did like way old school that time. We did a Sweet Valley book, which is like a whole other wild ride. We ruined a lot of my childhood memories of that series by revisiting it which is fine. But I did not remember how problematic those books were. Or maybe I just didn't clock it at the time. Yeah, they were pretty problematic. And I think that that episode was the first Sweet Valley episode that we did. It was the first book of the series. Yeah, it was the first book of the series. It was the first time I'd reread a Sweet Valley book for the podcast. And we went on to do many others. So listeners, I can be sure to link the episode that I had with Becca before and then some other Sweet Valley conversations that we've had. But Thankfully, we are in a, a much different era now, although we we have a little overlap actually with some Sweet Valley stuff with this New Reads November book because we are talking a little bit of time travel. The book is Throwback by Maureen Gu. And Becca, let's start by chatting about why this was your pick for New Reads November. Well, I, I have been on a real kick with time travel books lately. I feel like coming out of the pandemic, there are a lot of new time travel books. I mean, last year we had Emma Straub's book, This Time Tomorrow. Earlier this month in November, we have Sophie Cousins with The the Good Part. I feel like there's some that I'm missing too. I don't read, so I, I'm glad you brought this up because I tend not to be drawn to a lot of time travel. I did read the Emma Straub because like I'll read anything that she writes ever and forever and ever, amen. But I tend not to go for time travel. So I probably am missing a lot of other things. But I'm curious, like, do, did you like time travel before or is this a new discovery because it's so in the zeitgeist right now? I mean, I do like something that is light. Yeah light sci-fi I guess where it's grounded in the real world but there's this one thing that's different so I do like that but I've never read it from a teen perspective I mean I guess I've seen the movie 17 again with with Zac Efron but (laughs) you know I feel like a lot of the time travel is adults either going back and seeing their teen years in a different way or realizing that they should be happy where they are as an adult but I've never seen it from a teen perspective so I was really interested and also I mean, I'm a big judge a book by a cover person, and I thought this book had a fantastic cover. So so good. So that pulled me in too. Yeah, the cover is great. The cover deserves to be on every t-shirt that you could buy on a boardwalk in like Miami or at the Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. It's so 90s and so fun. So let's do a little setup. The book was one of the biggest YA acquisitions of 2022. It was a 10 house auction. So people like really wanted this book. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I'd read one of Maureen Gu's previous books. I read Somewhere Only We Know about the K-pop star. So that's how I was familiar with her. But I had no idea about this, this big, splashy auction. I know. I didn't know much about her. I have never read any of her work before. So this is my introduction to her. I found lots of great interviews with Maureen about this book and what inspired it. She's a big fan of Back to the Future. So that was one of the primary influences. She also has spoken quite a bit about how she's always wanted to write a mother-daughter story, but she wanted to make sure it wasn't too angsty. Like she feels like a lot of the mother-daughter narratives that she's come across in her time as a pop culture consumer just feel like a little too heavy or they lean maybe a little sentimental. And she wanted to find that sweet spot where she could write about this complex relationship that is so timeless and so relatable for so many people without that like 
overwrought sense of angst. And she also didn't want to come off as didactic. Like she talks a lot about how comedy is her sweet spot and she didn't want any of her readers to feel like she was preaching to them or teaching them a lesson. So it took her some time to really like settle on something. And apparently the book was pitched as Freaky Friday meets Amy Tan. And I think that that's a really fun like set of comps, especially when you put it with the Back to the Future pitch. And then I think she also talks quite a bit about John Hughes movies when she's promoing the book. So all of those things together, it's like it perfectly describes throwback, at least for me. Yes, agree. So at the beginning of the book, we meet Samantha, our protagonist. And Samantha is a 16-year-old. She lives in the LA area. And she's just like so annoyed by so many things, which is so relatable. Like we've all been there. And we find Samantha on the precipice of homecoming week. And the book really does like rotate around the homecoming festivities at her high school. And so I wanted to ask you, Becca, like, what was your experience with homecoming in high school? Was it a big deal for you? Like, do you have fond memories of it? Because in this book, it's a huge deal. And we get to see it through the lens of two different time periods. You know, I was thinking about that when I was reading. And I feel like at my school, prom was much bigger than homecoming. So we had a homecoming dance. I don't even remember if we had a homecoming court. I know we did prom queen and prom king, but I feel like homecoming was less of a big deal. Maybe it's because our school wasn't very good at football because I feel like it's really (laughs) tied into football games. What about you? Did you have homecoming? So I went to like a really big like suburban Friday Night Lights kind of school outside of Philadelphia. And so that kind of thing like was a pretty big deal. And I decided senior year to like, I don't know. I think I got some new confidence senior year. And so I suddenly was just like putting myself out there more. And I'd always been like very involved in school things. But I think senior year, I just decided to like stop being afraid to hang out with new people. And so I decided that like homecoming was going to be like my real entry into senior year. And so I had a lot of fun with homecoming. Like I really dressed up for all the theme days. Like I think I have, I should see if I can post any of them. Oh, you had the theme days. We never had that. Yeah, that sounded we had very fun. Days. It was fun. I'll have to see. I think I have them on my Facebook. They're probably terrible quality, but maybe I'll try to post some of them on Instagram. We had like 80s day. We had mismatched day, which is weird. We had like sports day, which is, I don't care about sports. So I don't even remember what I wore. But yeah, homecoming was a huge deal. I know I have like probably three Facebook albums of blurry digital camera photos on my Facebook. Maybe I'll try to pull some highlights to post this week, everybody. But I remember homecoming being a big deal. Not so much the dance because like I didn't have a boyfriend. I don't think I was very excited about my date, but it just felt like it felt important somehow. And so it was nice to revisit some of those memories, especially at this time of year. We were reading the book in the fall. So it was kind of evocative of that same time. And I felt like I was able to relate a little bit more to Priscilla, Samantha's mom, when we go back in time, who sees homecoming as a big deal. Because in 2007, when I was going to my homecoming, it did have that sense of excitement. And now, did people campaign for homecoming court the same way they did in the book? That was new to me. I don't think they campaigned. No big deal, but I was on homecoming court. Oh my goodness. I know. I didn't win, but it's okay. I got to ride in the bed of a pickup truck, which is very unsafe, through the streets of town. It was all very wholesome and idyllic and heteronormative, and I'm sure it's not done the same way anymore. At least I hope it's not. And hilariously, the guy who I was supposed to be paired with for court, he just chose not to come to any of the events. Oh. Like, he was just elusive, and he didn't come to anything. He was the loner kid. Yeah, he was the loner kid. Like, he was definitely the wild card that had been chosen for court. And so I third-wheeled, like, my best friend and her person who she was on court with. But no, I don't think anybody campaigned. But it was very similar. Like, prom court and homecoming court were pretty similar. I think campaigning was frowned upon. Like, maybe there was a little bit of chatter, but you weren't supposed to, like, have – I don't think anybody had posters or anything. I certainly didn't. Like, let's be clear there. So if I'm remembering correctly, at my school, they didn't pre-announce the contenders and then have a second vote. It was just one vote and then it got announced at the dance. And so there was no campaigning aspect. Interesting. Yeah, so we didn't have, there's no campaigning aspect, but 
there must have been a vote because court was a thing where like you you had to go to different events throughout the week mm. as somebody who was on court you were in the parade you were like you know rolling around in the back of a pickup truck on on the float we did that again super heteronormative thing where like my dad walked me onto the football field at the game what else happened they announced it at the dance and I remember I had this very 16 candles moment with my crush that I was like in love with for all of high school who was also on court and somehow we ended up like sort of sequestered in the same area while we were waiting to go out for the court announcement and I had like a moment with him it was really sweet I've talked about this crush at length on the podcast so people know about him and then they announced the winners at the dance I think is how it worked but there was all of this lead up to the announcement of the winners oh this all feels so CW TV show I know it really is very CW TV show for the record everybody like I was not Priscilla I didn't care that much about winning I was just excited to be included (laughs) I was happy to be invited to the party (laughs) and I didn't go to any parties because I wasn't actually invited to any real parties I was only nominated to be on the court so anyway Samantha on the other hand doesn't really want anything to do with this in the first couple of chapters we find out that she has been nominated to the court, but she's very clear that like her high school is really above all, all of this stuff. And I thought that it was an interesting window into what high school is presumably like for kids in 2023. And granted, Samantha goes to school in what seems to be very progressive, liberal part of the country. But she talks about how like all of this stuff is a joke. Like nobody cares. Nobody really wants to participate in this. It's very obvious that most kids think this is just very antiquated and lame. But then we meet her mom and we start to figure out what the dynamic is with her mom. What did you think about that? What did you think about the introduction of Sam and homecoming and then how we learn about her mom's feelings about homecoming? So I don't know anyone who's in high school today, so I can't tell you if it's an accurate window, but I was so odd by this idyllic school that's kind of post-racist, post-gender norms. Like it it seemed like everyone got along and I was like, could this possibly be true or is this just a a contrast to how high school was in the 90s to kind of play up those differences? So I was really surprised by this school. And when we saw Sam and her mom in action, they have a very contentious relationship where – I think we first meet her mom when they're trying to, they're applying to this country club and Sam is forced to kind of come to this interview and play along. And it's really important to her mom and it's clearly not important to her and she's being kind of a brat about it. And while I've never had this same, this same situation, Sam and her mom's dynamic just brought me straight back to high school. I was grounded through so much of high school for everything for talking back for doing things I wasn't supposed to do for staying out too late and just her fighting with her mom made me feel like a bratty teenager again yeah I mean kind of in a good way but I was like oh yeah this is I remember this this is how it's done yes yeah she really did not pull any punches with her mom which I could not totally relate to just because I was much more measured with my mom But I could relate to a lot of the feelings that she was having and not expressing, like a lot of the pressures that she was experiencing. And there's a lot that I can't relate to. Like we should make sure we lay the groundwork here that Samantha is Korean American and her mom is first generation, if I'm not mistaken. It's her grandmother who was born in Korea. And so what we find as we go through throwback is the different pressures that were placed on Sam's mom as the first generation to be born in America And now on Sam, who is now the second generation. And so there's some really interesting cultural and immigrant experience layers going on in this book. And Samantha does feel pressures. We find out later that it's not the same ones that her mom experienced. But she feels like she has a lot to live up to. Not only because her mom just has high expectations, but because she has this brother who's a literal genius and has blown everybody away with his academic achievements. And Sam doesn't really have that much ambition. She doesn't feel like she needs to figure out what she wants to do with her life. And all that her mom wants her to do is like fill out a college application. Like that's all that she's been asking her to do all summer. And Sam has been very consumed with her boyfriend. I actually really felt a lot of empathy for Sam's mom because Sam's mom's message wasn't so much like, you can't hang out with your boyfriend but 
maybe you should have other interests other than your boyfriend's interests. And I think we've all had friends at different parts of our lives where it's like, I'm really happy that you're happy. And it's not that I don't like your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your significant other, but you no longer have your own passions and interests. And that's where we meet Sam. Like she's in this place where she doesn't have a plan for herself, but what's kind of more upsetting is that she's just like riding somebody else's plan and her mom just wants her to like figure out one thing that's of interest to her. I thought it was really sweet that while Sam is kind of a mess and has this really contentious relationship with her own mother, she has a really sweet relationship with her grandmother. And I think that really helped me to keep rooting for her, even though she's maybe not making the best choices. Although I think that it's a really accurate archetype that she is somebody who doesn't have it figured out and doesn't care that much about school and doesn't want the same things that her mom wants for her. But I loved the relationship that she had with her grandmother who lives in an assisted living community. And she kind of goes over there and has dinners with her and is very like doting and caring towards her grandmother. So she has this really lovely relationship. It's not just that Sam is prickly and hard to get along with. It's that just specifically her and her mom clash where she has a really nice relationship with her grandmother. Yeah, we see a whole different side of Sam when she's with her grandmother. So we see a much softer part of her personality. And this is the part that I really related to. I didn't necessarily connect to the openly contentious relationship between the mother and the daughter. But when I was in high school, I lived with my mom and my grandmother. So for many years, we had this like three generation household And there were a lot of parallels between my experience and Sam's experience. My grandmother, my Nana and I were extremely close and had a lot in common. And my mom and my grandmother were very different from each other, especially when my mom was a teenager. And so I remember sometimes seeing my mom get frustrated, I think kind of like watching the relationship that I had with my grandmother. And there were a few things that Sam's mom says throughout the book that just kind of like, stabbed me a little bit in the heart because I would imagine that they reflect things that my mom felt sort of watching her mom have a second opportunity to parent with me like at one point Sam's mom says like my mom isn't your grandmother like I didn't have the same mom that you get to see now it was a much different relationship she was a much different person when I was in high school and of course when you're 16 when you're in Sam's position you're like whatever like you just don't remember it correctly. Like my grandmother's the best and you just didn't appreciate her. And we find out within a few chapters that Sam's going to have the unique opportunity to literally go back in time and pressure test that. I love to talk about this question because I don't think it is, and I don't think the answer is like inherently good or bad. Did you find Sam likable? Like I love an unlikable narrator. Did you find her to be a likable way into this story? Now that we've covered the way she is with her grandmother, the way she is with her mother, on the whole, when we meet her, because she does end up having quite the arc, do you find her to be likable? I didn't find her to be unlikable. I guess I found her to be neutral, but I found her to be relatable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important with YA. Yeah, and I think my way into that was my relationship with my maternal figure in my life. And so having that same obviously motivated from a different place, not coming from the pressures of being a first-generation immigrant and wanting better for your children, but, you know, just in terms of just not seeing eye-to-eye with a parental figure. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I think what I've learned every year doing New Reads November is that protagonists in YA from, like, the 80s, 90s, the aughts, were much more either really great, super likable, very straightforward – or super straightforward bad. Like Mm. we either have villains or we have heroes. We either have an aspirational narrator, an aspirational protagonist, or we have a protagonist that is such an outlier in society or is so different to any experience that a reader could possibly have that they are naturally more of a villain. And I think with the books that are written for teens and even middle grade readers today, the goal is to have them be much more nuanced, maybe neutral, and to create these windows for readers to connect with them based on experiences and relationships like the one you mentioned. Like, this is a very specific and well-drawn relationship that I think a lot of readers, no matter where they live or when they live, 
can latch on to as something that feels familiar. So I agree with you. I think that she is complicated, neutral, and relatable. Now that we've established some of the dynamics in these relationships, we we really zoom in on what's going on with homecoming. So Sam tells her mom that she's been nominated for homecoming court. Her mom's all excited. It seems like something they could connect about. And Sam is like, no thanks, pass. I don't want to do this. And of course, she looks to her grandmother for empathy. She sees that her grandmother will probably agree with her. And they kind of gang up on the mom a little bit, which again, that's a dynamic that felt a little familiar to me from when I was in high school and I felt bad about it. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. And of course, in the flurry of all of this, the worst possible thing that can happen happens. And I was like, please, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. Sam's grandmother is in a coma because she has been hiding this health condition and she has a heart problem. And so she's now in the hospital in a coma. And I was, I was devastated, Becca. What were your thoughts in this moment? I was devastated, but unsurprised yeah. because I feel like <laughs> something like this has to happen in order for time travel to happen. Right. You know, there has to be somebody's life hanging in the balance or, you know, there has to be something, this major thing that if you go back to and the clock unfreezes, you risk losing someone or something you love. Yeah, there has to be a major thing that happens. I guess because this was YA, I wasn't so worried because I felt like I would have been shocked if her grandmother, I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler, but it's fine. I would have been shocked if her grandmother actually passed away. If it was an adult book, I think I would have maybe felt more anxiety about whether or not she would survive. See, I immediately was like, she's going to die. Oh. And maybe I was projecting my own experience because, again, like, I was like, I am Sam. This is my grandmother. I have this very close relationship with her. My grandmother died very suddenly. I didn't get to say goodbye. It was very traumatic. So I was like, this is it. This is the end. Like, I, I was convinced and I was very relieved. Spoiler alert, but I don't think this changes anybody's experience with the book. When at the end of the book, her grandmother lives really lovely surprise but I was devastated and I think it was because I had already decided that it was over for her grandmother and it was very upsetting oh so we had very different experiences of reading this book very different I was very fatalistic about the whole thing it's like we're done this is heartbreaking already but while Sam's grandmother is in a coma she gets very frustrated with the way her mom is behaving she feels like her mom is being so cold she's trying to get Sam to go home there's just like something that is not connecting between the two of them in this experience of grief in the hospital. And Sam's mom goes so far as to like try to initiate a shopping trip for a homecoming dress, which Sam being a teenager and being deep in her feelings and being reasonably emotionally intelligent, I think, and having her own experience is like, this is fucked up. <laughs> like, I don't want to go shopping for a homecoming dress while my grandmother is in a literal coma. And they have a huge fight like knock down drag out say things that cannot be taken back and that is an experience I don't think I ever really remember having with my mom but I remember hearing about those fights from my friends who like they were like this we will never we will never get over this of course 20 years later and everything's fine but it was hard to read especially because it was so early in the book like we're on page 40 50 60 and they're having this massive fight and I'm like where do we go from here like what's going to happen to repair this rift we're going to go back in time we are and you know how we're going to get there Becca with a knockoff uber app okay so what did you think about this about this storytelling device about the ride share as the mode of time travel I cannot wait for your thoughts I was willing to suspend my disbelief that this Southern California teenager didn't have an actual rideshare app and needed to go to the app store. And then that they trusted this no-name app. I think it's called Throwback Rides. Literally called Throwback Rides. <laughs> and then gets into the car with this very dangerous driver yeah. who also seems a little unhinged personality-wise and was like, this is fine. So – I think it's kind of the fun of we know that this is a tra time travel book coming in. It says it on the back cover. Like, that's not a big twist. Right. And so I was willing to go along with it. I feel like it made sense. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you're reading a time travel book or any, like, sci-fi light, 
you have to just understand that you're going to have to suspend disbelief for at least a minute or two because we have to get from one place to the other. There were moments when I really liked the rideshare thing as a device and moments where I didn't. Like at first when we find out that this is what's going to happen, obviously as soon as we see throwback rides, it's like, okay, this is how she's going to go back in time, duh. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like that makes so much sense. It's so contemporary. It's so fresh. It will make sense to kid readers in 2023. And then I think as it unfolds throughout the book, there are moments and I was like, okay, like I feel like I've had a little bit of enough of the ride share. And it was funny, I was reading a few reviews from book bloggers and a lot of them were saying how they tend not to read time travel because they have so much trouble suspending disbelief and they like know that about themselves. And so then they then can't like fully enjoy the book. And they had like those reservations, but you, you do have to get over it. I could suspend disbelief, but like for whatever reason, I just like, I didn't like Marge, the driver. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get into the Marge thing. Oh, sure. But I think my rules for reading and everyone can make their own. So feel free to disagree is that you get one thing. You, you get one thing where you can kind of play with the rules and make something kind of ridiculous but you don't get multiple and then the rest of the rules of the universe have to make sense with that and I thought it did like it wasn't as if when she went back she still had her cell phone because it was on her person but it didn't work yeah she couldn't call her friends in the future she couldn't connect to whatever early version of the internet existed right so I felt like all of the rules of the world made sense and this was kind of the only thing that I had to kind of let slide yeah and I guess you have to think of it as like silly like Marge is silly Marge is portrayed as Definitely this kind silly. of goofy driver I don't think Maureen Gu wants us to take Marge the throwback rides driver seriously she's kind of this like fairy godmother of sorts She's facilitating these second chances for teenagers who have had big fights with people in their families. We find out later on that Sam is not the only one who's in this situation. And so I think if it had been presented as this like more serious thing, I would have struggled with it more. I think generally if I have one complaint about the book or one question about the book, it felt a little long for me. Like it dragged a little bit in the middle. And so maybe there were just moments when throwback rides came into the mix in the middle of the book where I was like okay I've had enough throwback rides but in general I thought it was a really smart device and a good way to bring 2023 readers into the mix of time travel and voila we are in the 90s and conveniently Sam's mom went to the same high school that Sam attends so when Sam shows up at this high school at first she's like oh it looks a little bit different but like here I am at school like Marge brought me to school because my mom left me in a shopping mall because we had a fight And she starts to notice some changes. And it was funny because as I was reading Throwback, I was also rereading Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And I hadn't read it in a while. And that book is about high school. And it's not like a specified time, but you get the sense that it's probably like the 90s or the early aughts. And it's a very different environment because it's like this very buttoned up boarding school in New England but it was just interesting to see some of like the similar cultural references have you read prep I read it but I read it when it first came out so it has been years decades yeah I read it when it first came out too I think it came out in 2006 and I read it a few times since and I was just feeling inspired to pick it back up so it was just it was kind of funny because I felt like I was very much like in this 90s high school world but once Sam gets back to the 90s I mean once she realizes that she has traveled through time, she realizes that she is like looking at her mother in high school. And this really sent me down a path of like imagining what it would be like to hang out with either of my parents or any number of like caretakers, loved ones in my life. And I think this is a thing that I've thought about before, like when I was in high school, especially if I was feeling like really angsty about things, like what would it be like to hang out with my parents in high school? But this book, of course, like you can't help but think about it because that's the whole story is that Sam is faced with Priscilla, who is the high school version of this mom that she really struggles to understand. Did you have any thoughts like on what that experience might be like for you? Yes. However, I think this brought up for me kind of my big hanging, looming question about the book, which is who is this book for? Is it for adults thinking uh, either with enough perspective 
to want to or care about thinking about their own parents when they were younger? Or is it for parents of teens who feel misunderstood? Or is it actually for teens themselves? Because one of my biggest kind of questions throughout the book was, and, you know, I think Gen Z and Gen A are so different than my own generation that, you know, I can't even pretend to know the answer to this, but do teens care about their parents as people before they were born? Because I did not as a teenager. Life started when I was born. That's interesting. So I wonder if I cared because I spent a lot of my life as an only child. And so I was curious about like my mom in particular as like a person who is my age and maybe also because we lived with my grandmother. So like I heard stories about my mom as a teenager, Mm. but I, I wonder if you're right. And I wonder if that's a unique perspective. Like I do think that the vast majority of media that I consume that's about teens or like for teens or even hearing my friends talk about their experiences in high school, maybe there's not that much curiosity. Maybe I was just particularly emotional. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a fantastic premise of, hey, go back and live this through your mom's eyes who you have this contentious relationship with. But I just wonder if actual teens care. I wouldn't have. Maybe I am a, maybe I was a particularly bullheaded, like not open teenager, but I, I wouldn't have, but I could picture like somebody who is a parent of a teen finding immense comfort in this book. Yeah. Maybe it's like, it's like ideal for like a mother daughter book club. Like if there was ever a perfect. Oh yeah. Yes. Book for a mother daughter book club situation. I think Maureen Gu has given it to you on a silver platter. I agree with that. I totally agree. Yeah. So if there are any moms of teens listening, go pick this up if you want to bond with your teen, because that's really what Maureen Gu is getting at. And she, I was reading one of the interviews. So she's like, she's slightly younger, she said, than Priscilla would be in the book. And I don't, I didn't find anything about whether or not she like has teens herself or if she has children herself. It really seems like she was writing this more for her mom. It's dedicated to her mom. So I don't know how much she was like thinking about the teenage perspective. She was definitely writing it like in hindsight more than like looking forward, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think uh, that's a really good question. I think maybe 2023 teens would appreciate like the 90s of it all with this book. But that's only because the 90s are back. Like I wonder how much the appeal of the book might shift if the 90s were not having such a resurgence because you have me thinking now about like who the book is for and if some teens wouldn't be as taken with the notion of meeting their parent as a teenager or if like homecoming is not as big of a thing for kids today which like I doubt it is even in the most like you know traditional high schools if homecoming is not something that you can latch onto, it would be hard to really enjoy a lot of this book. So I'm just, I'm trying to think of like what a teen would be most into. And I think the 90s parts of it could be really fun. Yeah, for sure. What else do we think? I mean, time travel, there's always some appeal to time travel. The idea of like changing history, the parental relationships are interesting. We have this high stakes mission that we learn that Sam is on because she suspects that the reason that her mom and her grandmother still have this animosity between them in the future is because they had this big fight around homecoming. Because right before she time traveled, Sam lets us know as the reader that she has heard these stories about how her mom was on the homecoming court and her grandmother was like not happy about it for some reason. They had this massive fight. And so Sam decides like, oh, I must have been sent back in time to homecoming week to fix something so that when I go back to the future things will be better between my mom and my grandmother. Maybe my grandmother won't be in a coma. Like I'll basically solve all the problems. So now we have Sam coming in essentially as her teenage mother's campaign manager for homecoming queen, something that she doesn't care about in the future. And she also has to learn to navigate these new social dynamics. And I did think that that was super interesting and would probably appeal to certain members of Gen Z. What do you think? This was my favorite part was how funny it was to see her try to exist in the 90s and also 
it was really funny in a not haha way, but like it was funny to hear her like the the types of slang that didn't resonate. Yeah. At one point, she says, "OMG," yeah. and that doesn't mean anything. In the 90s, because it's pre that, or she, she uses the word spam at one point, which isn't a thing because there's not really email yet. So there's no spam email. Yeah. And so I I thought that that, that cultural or not cultural divide, that generational divide was so funny. And to see her try to navigate it, like at one point she has to use a microfiche machine, which she doesn't know how to use. <laughs> like I, I thought that there was a lot of comedy in the girl from 2023 trying to cover up that she's from the future back in the 90s well and it just like it just brings into such sharp contrast like how reliant we are on technology too because yeah I can sit here and sort of like lol at the teenager who's completely lost in some ways but I as an adult if I time traveled it would take me a long time to adjust to life without the technologies that I'm used to today like she has to remind herself about her phone being on its way out of battery. Like she has to use pay phones. She has to figure out how to take a bus without using an app. Like I would be completely screwed. Absolutely. I would be screwed if I were thrown back into the 90s. She describes like these big computers in the computer lab at school. Brought me right back to like the elementary school computer lab where I used to play Oregon Trail. Yeah, I mean, I it's just, I think anybody who lives in the 21st century has to have a few moments of like, ugh, we are so embarrassing that we cannot function without these toys. And Sam is just like, she has no idea what she's doing. There's a lot of fun to read. And then there's these like bigger, like sort of cultural commentaries that I want to make sure we touch on because Sam is learning a lot about her mom and why her mom is the way she is. And a lot of the tension between them in the future, she discovers has to do with the value of fitting in versus standing out. I think in 2023, there is this not only acceptance of standing out, but there's this real celebration of standing out, especially in a place I would imagine like LA with kids who are growing up on social media, like you're praised for setting yourself apart, for like branding yourself in an interesting way. And even as somebody who is Korean American and is maybe different than some of her peers, Sam like doesn't really see that as a thing. It's not something that she feels is holding her back. She, if anything, is kind of frustrated in the future that her mom doesn't embrace her Korean culture. And that's part of why she loves spending time with her grandmother because her grandmother cooks Korean food and like they really celebrate that together. So now when she goes back to the 90s, she's starting to understand a little bit more about why her mom might feel the way she does about her Korean heritage. And there were just like so many lines that I pulled out that I just, I thought really were like, well done. Even when she was talking to some of the other Asian American students, like Sam assumes that these other classmates are going to immediately have solidarity with Priscilla when she's running for homecoming queen because like they look the same. And Sam's like, well, duh, of course, like we've got the Asian vote. And she says, where's the solidarity? She's the only Asian running. And Jennifer says, you're new, so you don't know. But Priscilla is so whitewashed. She doesn't have any Asian friends, even at church where like everyone's Korean. And they're all talking about how like they use the phrase white people shit in reference to homecoming. They're like, we don't want to participate in this. It's white people shit. But Priscilla, on the other hand, like very much wants to be part of white people shit. It's very important to her to be accepted by these popular groups of people. She's a cheerleader. Like, she wants to be in this all-American group, which is not just for her, but it's for her mom. She wants to honor the sacrifices that her parents made so that she could grow up in America. What did you think about how some of those tensions were explored? I thought that this was really interesting and so well-drawn, and especially observing, knowing that Sam is from the future, where she's kind of in this very utopian high school where it's many different students from many different cultures where it seems like almost post-popularity isn't yeah. even a thing anymore and so to go back and see have the culture shock of what her mom's high school experience was was really interesting and I, I wrote down or I didn't write down I, I kind of wrote down the paraphrased version of at one point she's looking around the cafeteria and she sees that there's the table of Korean kids, there's a table of Middle Eastern kids, there's a table of black kids. 
And then there's the table of like the jocks and the artists and whatever. And she says something along the lines of only the white kids are allowed to contain multitudes Mm -hmm. outside of that. The people from a different racial background are seated with people from the same racial background. Right. People who look like them. People who look like them. And I, I thought that was a really powerful way to put it, that only the white kids were allowed to contain multitudes. Yeah, it's very, like, it It calls to mind even the images of, like, the Mean Girls cafeteria. Like, these are the, this is what we were fed, I think, even in the aughts. Like, this is how people tend to select themselves. And if I really think critically about my own high school experience, I think that's kind of how it was. And I, as a white kid, didn't think about the freedom that existed in that. And Priscilla, in the 90s, as a Korean-American high schooler who desperately wants to fit in, doesn't necessarily get that luxury unless she puts up with a lot of bad behavior on the part of her classmates. Like, all of her friends are horrible. I pulled out one quote that says, it occurred to me that her acceptance, her meaning Priscilla, into this group was conditional on her acting like one of the cool ones, on her letting racist shit slide. But maybe it also depended on Neil's crush on her and Neil's this like cool white football player. After all, I'd just seen firsthand the effect of Neil's obnoxious alpha energy on these people. So like Priscilla is really just a pawn in what these cool white kids want to think is cool. And she has to tolerate a lot of microaggressions from them. And of course, Sam is like tuned into all of those, whereas Priscilla has learned to let them roll off her back. In a couple of the interviews that I found, Maureen Gu talks about how like when she was writing this book, she realized that she put up with a lot of really terrible things when she was in high school that at the time didn't occur to her. And she said like part of that is just because kids and teens are resilient. But part of it too is that when you are part of a marginalized community and nobody is like talking to you about the respect you deserve, you just learn to accept that and how it was like really upsetting, but also kind of, it was kind of healing for her to write this story and think through some of those experiences she'd had. But I I thought that that was really interesting. And of course, the empathy that Sam is able to develop for her mother, watching her mother struggle and watching her mother have to like juggle these double standards. Like her mom gets in trouble while she's campaigning for homecoming queen for things that the white kids do and don't get in trouble. She's just like constantly, constantly, constantly up against more obstacles. She has to work twice as hard. And that's to say nothing of the pressure she feels at home because we already know that Sam experiences what she feels are like the worst possible expectations from her parents. But now that we've gone back in time to see what it was like to grow up as her mom, she is really dealing with her own set of pressures. Her mom is a struggling single mother who owns a dry cleaner and Priscilla is expected to work there all the time without complaining. And there's one line, I'll paraphrase it, but Sam basically observes like, it was amazing that my mom had to put up with all this shit all day and then she still had to go home and like be a good daughter and be a good sister. And like the happiness of the whole family was on my mom's shoulders and she didn't get to complain. And it's just heartbreaking. She even realizes specific things like, you know, as strict as she felt her mom was in the future, her mom never let her have a job. Like it was important to Sam's mom that she never have to work. And so she's able to appreciate that or like, there are other kids in the group and even Priscilla's mom like doesn't let her have a social life. And Sam is like, my parents let me go out as much as I want. Like there's just this, this kind of perspective that Sam establishes once she sees what her own mom was up against. And there's real empathy there, but it didn't feel saccharine. Like it didn't feel unearned. It felt like she still realized like my mom's not perfect, but she was able to appreciate things differently for sure. Yeah, I agree. And I I thought it was also really interesting seeing her reckon with her grandmother. Yeah. And seeing that her grandmother did have a really different relationship with her mother and was in some ways unavailable to her because, you know, she was the breadwinner. She was the only parent. She's working so much. And they don't have they don't have a whole lot of an emotional relationship. Priscilla and the grandmother and seeing how different her grandmother is to Sam versus how her grandmother acted to her mother I thought was really interesting and helped to fill in some of those gaps in the future as to why their relationship is like that but also 
you know, your relationship to people can be different than other people's relationship to that same person. Right. Nobody is the same person to everybody in their life. Right. Like we try to be consistent in the way we show up, but I think it's almost impossible. Every dynamic is different. It's so funny. Right now I'm I'm rewatching Gilmore Girls. Perfect. And I I watched it when it was on the air. I was the same age as Rory when the show was airing. I watched it with my mom, who was a single mom. That show meant a lot to me. I've watched it probably two or three more times as an adult. And I haven't watched it since the year in the life, the reboot mini series came out. Yeah. I watched the whole show leading up to that. And and so I think that came out in 2016. So I haven't rewatched the show in about seven years. And it's so interesting going back to the exact same show at a different point in my life where I am now older than Lorelai is in the first season and seeing these characters through a completely different light and having different regard for their action where when I was a kid I was like oh Lorelai was a really fun parent that would be so awesome versus as an adult I'm like wow she's kind of emotionally immature and like putting a lot on her daughter and it's just like the way that you see different things at different times or based on who you are at that time and I think being able to see almost using Priscilla as a window to see her grandmother in a different way I I was like oh my gosh I'm kind of having the same same situation as Sam that I'm mind blown I'm time traveling just by virtue of time passing watching the same show again and seeing it completely differently and it's it's like truly wild that's a great parallel I think like and listeners if you enjoy exploring those relationships in Gilmore Girls you will love throwback because some of those like mother daughter grandmother nuances are very real in similar ways but no I think that's a good point because I too as a teenager was like Lorelai is so fun and so cool and how dare Emily try to steal her sparkle but as I watched it additional times as I've gotten older I'm like wait Rory's really lucky that she had Emily to come in and like just kind of make sure that she had another set of influences like and sometimes Lorelai really messes up and does things that are disrespectful and harmful to Rory so I think that's a really good point we don't need to get into this too much but I'd love your like general thoughts on the love interest what did you think about the romance in the book okay I don't know how spoilery we want to go I was very much not on board with it at the beginning because in my head I could not stop doing the math and the dissonance of Sam falling for a guy in the 90s and then in the present how that he would be right you know in his 40s I was so creeped out by that yeah I was so so creeped out and I was really happy that that got acknowledged a few times because I was like I I can't be the only one seeing this so I was really really resistant to this romance and not for the reason that she already has a boyfriend in the present but just because of the creepiness factor yeah, I think that's very fair because we don't really, there's a lot of math that is not quite mathing at the beginning. And luckily we find out about halfway through the book that like everything's above board. It's okay that she likes Jamie and that Jamie likes her. And I ended up I ended up liking how a lot of the pieces came together at the end. I did have moments while I was reading it where I was like, I feel like she's doing a lot here. Like there's so many different pieces coming together. Like I said, it felt really long at points. But she managed to bring all of those loose ends into a really nice ending. And I thought that the romance was a good example of that. Like at times it's like, is this necessary? But it it came it came to a happy ending, I thought. Yeah, I did I came around on it. Yeah. So on the whole, how do you think throwback compares to the books that you read when you were a teenager or even some of the other pop culture that you consumed when you were a teenager? And what does that say about how we as a society are like changing the way we talk to teenagers? What's different now versus when we were teenagers based on throwback? I feel like this had a a lesson, but did it in a much more subtle way than some of the programs or books that were meant to teach lessons when I was a kid. I'm thinking of Seventh Heaven. Yes. And do you see ever see on TikTok the guy who revisits Seventh Heaven? It's hilarious. And I actually watch just like for background noise. And I was curious how it would age based on those hilarious videos. I watched a couple of episodes. They're hitting you over the head with a cast iron pan about the message. Oh my God. 
the world's biggest cast iron pan. Yeah, yeah huge one. Mm-hmm. Huge, heavy cast iron pan. Yeah. And so I felt like this one was not overly didactic in terms of how it had a message about having empathy for your parents. And I think it showed it in a really organic way. It was certainly less salacious than some of the things that I used to like to read as a teen. Yeah, there's it's very clean. It was very clean. And even though Sam has a contentious relationship with her mom, you know, she's not really doing anything bad. She's not sneaking out. She's not, I don't know, you know, it, they, she was a good kid. Yeah, she was a good kid. I was. I think there was maybe a little drinking and like maybe some light references to smoking. I don't need, but it wasn't a big thing. Right. And so I feel like I used to gravitate towards more salacious things when I was a kid. Right. We were Gossip Girl teenagers. We grew up in the age of Gossip Girl. So yes. So you know, in that way, I feel like it was a ha- it was a happy medium that, as a parent, I feel like. It- to your point earlier, this would be the perfect mother-daughter book club book. But I wonder if for an actual teen, you would be like, give me some more of the illicit stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sam is pretty well-behaved, I think. She doesn't really step out of line too much, except for that one time she yells at her mom a lot. But, you know, then they make up and they she establishes so much empathy and it's lovely. Yes. I really enjoyed reading it. I wish I had it as a kid. I think especially given my particular, like, living situation, I would have had a lot of aha moments when I was reading it as a teenager. I don't know that that would be everybody's experience. I, of course, had, like, a very specific family structure. And uh, there were a lot of moments, as I said before, where I was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, mom. I also feel like it was a great empathy building book to experience the struggles, not necessarily of the current generation, but of the previous generation with regards to racism, but then also kind of the immigrant struggles of being a first generation American and what it took to to make ends meet. And I, I think that maybe for teens today who are a little further removed from that situation, just generationally, or didn't have that in their own families. Like, I feel like I really liked that about this book. And I feel like it was like a great, a great window into that experience. That's a great point. And something that I read, and I don't remember which interview it was, but Maureen Gu talked somewhere about how like she has, has read so many narratives that focus on the experience of immigrants and then first generation Americans. But she wanted to write a story that explored the three generations so she wanted to show what it was like for that third generation the second generation American who was as you said Becca like more removed and how there are like parts of that immigrant experience that maybe they're still very keyed into but also parts that they've forgotten and like those cultural divides those misunderstandings that happen with her mom so yeah I felt like it definitely it definitely made me think about a few things differently things that I take for granted and I thought there was a lot that was great about it. Like I said, there were moments when I thought it was a little long, but for the most part, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. And I will give a separate plug that I read it on audio. Oh. And I thought that the narrator did a fantastic job. Oh, shout out to Throwback on Audio. Get it on Libro FM, everyone. That's good to know. I know we have a lot of audiobook lovers in the audience, so I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad we got to chat about it. Other than throwback on audio, what have you read recently, Becca, that you recommend to our listeners? So the most recent book that I read and loved doesn't come out until next March, but I read Rebecca Searle's newest book, which all of her books also kind of have a, I wouldn't call it sci-fi element, but, you know, kind of a magical realism element to them. So the newest book is about a woman who is single in her 30s, and every time she enters into any type of romantic relationship, the universe delivers her a piece of paper that tells her the length of time that she will be with that person. Hmm. And so, you know, like a lot of her past books, it has a lot to do with fate versus free will. It's definitely her most romance-centric book to date, and I really enjoyed it. It's called Expiration Dates, and it comes out March 5th. So a little bit of a wait, but worth the wait for sure. Worth a pre-order too. And We love a pre-order, so go pre-order that, fans of Rebecca Searle. Thank you for giving us the preview. And I mentioned this to you before we started recording, Becca, but I had the very lucky treat of getting an early copy of your book, The Christmas Orphans Club. And I'm a big seasonal reader, love a festive read, 
And I usually wait a little bit longer, but because I'm pregnant this year, I'm like, all rules are off. I'm like, I'm going to start <laughs> watching Christmas movies early. I'm going to start reading Christmas books early. Like, when do we start listening to the music? All of the things. So I was like, it is not too early for me to start reading this, especially because it's Becca's book. And I brought it on our baby moon. I read it in an afternoon. It was such a treat. I had the best time. I have been seeing the Christmas Orphans Club at the top of like every recommended list of holiday books for 2023 but I want to make sure that our listeners are aware of it and are as excited about it as they should be. First of all, congratulations on your debut. Such a big deal, and I'm thrilled for you, and it's such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you. Years after having you on for the first time, and now you're an author, and we get to talk about that. Fill us in on the Christmas Orphans Club. What's it about? What inspired it? Tell us Tell us the story. Sure. So the Christmas Orphans Club is about a group of four friends who are each alone on Christmas for a different reason and have built a found family tradition of spending the holidays together, having these very fun kind of non-traditional holiday celebrations together. And the book is told in alternating now and then timelines. So in the past, you get to see how this friend group came to be and kind of the greatest hits of their past Christmases. And then in the present, uh, they're all about 30 and one of them is getting ready to move from New York to LA. And so they're really, um, they're planning what might be their last Christmas together and really grappling with growing up without growing apart. I love found family stories and I feel like there's not enough of that, especially in like the holiday space. It's all like the romances. So I loved, I love that this was a friendship love story. Yeah. And, and that is really kind of, I wrote it almost in reaction to a lot of what exists in the genre. I didn't mention it earlier in the conversation because it didn't seem pertinent, but my mom passed away when I was a teenager. And, you know, while I love I love everything about Christmas. I love the decorations. I love the food. I love holiday parties, et cetera. Like the actual day of Christmas can be a little bit of a bummer. And I have consumed a lot of Christmas content, you know, especially movies, because I feel like, you know, a holiday movie is easy. It's 90 minutes. You're on your phone scrolling for half of it. Doesn't require a lot of attention. But when it came to books, which require kind of more undivided focus, I'd, I'd read a few. And I, I didn't really see myself reflected in any of them. A lot of holiday books tend to be very small town, very family oriented. A lot of times the romance is about going back and connecting with somebody from your past. And, you know, as somebody who I lost my mother who is a single mom, I don't have a family home to return to. Like I just didn't see myself in a lot of this content. And so I started thinking about what would I want in a holiday book and Given that background, it sounds like this book is going to be majorly depressing, which I hope it isn't. It's not. Um, it is very fun, too. But it does have this this real layer to it as well, that it's not just two Hallmark families with competing inns or something like that. Like, there is a layer of real stuff in there, too, because I think the holidays can be a really challenging time for people, regardless of what your family situation is. Yeah, and it hits some beautiful notes from lots of different angles. Like you said, each of the forming characters finds themselves alone on Christmas for a different reason. And so I think that the book does a great job of addressing the emotional depth of each of those. And it also, I mean, I think as as we get older, like there's this challenge of establishing new traditions that feels hard and scary again no matter what your family of origin looks like and I found it really inspiring to see these like 30 somethings creating new traditions making new memories Um, and I really do think there's something in this book for everybody so if you don't find yourself reflected in holiday content typically I I think that there is absolutely something for you to relate to in this book and it was just a lot of fun to read I like I felt things. I was happy. I was sad. I was rooting for the characters. I just had the best time reading it. So listeners, this episode is dropping Thanksgiving week. So it really is like the perfect time to get your hands on a copy. And uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. So make sure you check out the link in the show notes, the link that I'll post on Instagram this week, because the Christmas Orphans Club should absolutely be on your list this holiday season. Oh, thank you so much, Ellie. That is so such a kind pitch for the book. Well, I loved reading it, and it was so good to spend this time with you again. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.